Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. You are about to have your mind blown. I have on the podcast, one of the smartest people I've ever talked to about crypto, the economy. We got to one-tenth of the topics that I wanted to get to, but we started off with what's going on with the economy, what's going on with inflation, what might happen next, and then we go straight into crypto. And the real-world use cases of crypto are so huge and so incredibly useful that it's going to change the entire world. And that's basically what we speak about. And if you like this episode, make sure you share, you subscribe, you write a review, you say hi to everybody on Twitter, love your family. And I hope to have Tasha back on many times in the future. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Tasha, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks. I'm very excited about this. I've known about you for a long time. When I just first started my company, I read your like writings on marketing and also content creation. I find that very inspiring. Well, you have gone beyond like your content. Cre- I read everything you write and <laughs> it is so intelligent and so particularly on crypto. You Obviously, we we're talking about crypto. You write a lot about that. What's a little bit of your background? Where, By the way, where are you calling in from? Yes, I live in Washington, D.C. So I'm a macroeconomist by background, right? So I got my PhD in macroeconomics from Georgetown. And I've been in macroeconomic consulting for a very long time. I advise governments on monetary and fiscal policies. And I also am an entrepreneur. I own a software SaaS company in audio publishing, actually. <laughs> oh, really? We'll have to hear all that. As you noticed before the podcast, we had severe problems. But like When you say you advise like other countries, what does like the president of a country call you up and say, Tasha, should I raise taxes? What should I do? Yeah, well, yeah, monetary and fiscal policy. But, you know, I'm representing myself in your podcast, so I'm not representing any organizations. Okay, before we get into crypto, let me ask you about our monetary and fiscal policy. <laughs> like, there's so many arguments about inflation and recession, and I feel like it's gotten to the point where politics has made everyone stupid. Like nobody now can listen to any one definition or everybody has different arguments about inflation. Just before we get into the crypto stuff, and I have a lot of questions on that, and you're, you're, again, your stuff is, I highly recommend everybody go to TashaLabs.com. T-A-S-C-H-A labs.com just to subscribe to all your stuff. But what's going on in the U.S.? Is this inflation monetary, as some say? Is it fiscal? Is it temporary? Is it supply shocks? What's going on? I think the answer is a little bit of both, right? So uh, everybody has a different point of view, and they tend to emphasize on the uh, piece of uh, the puzzle that they want to emphasize that aligns with their point of view. But really, I think it's a, it's a combination of things. If you look at some of the research, uh, empirical research that put out, uh, I think uh, the San Francisco Fed, for example, put out some good ones uh, to look at uh, the supply and demand side components of the inflation in the U.S. since COVID. And the conclusion is it's probably half and half, you know? Part of it is uh, supply chain related uh, bottlenecks of uh, logistics and so on and so forth. And part of it also the demand side because uh, the, the check size the government <laughs> gave out was probably uh, too big. And uh, there is definitely a monetary component to this, but there's also a supply component to this. 
And the Fed last year, when they initially was trying to assess the inflation situation, they were only looking at the supply side angle. That's their own point of view at the time. And also, you know, we've had a low inflation for so long. I think they were a little bit not so on guard in terms of the potential demand side impact on inflation. Yeah, because the way someone at the Fed has explained it to me is that there's been so much demand for the dollar basically around the world. Everybody wanted the dollar. So they couldn't even get inflation before COVID. So they felt pretty comfortable printing trillions of dollars because they felt everybody would soak up the dollars and there would be enough, you know, economic growth that it would it would handle it. And I guess that hasn't happened or has the demand for the dollar decreased? No, we've had, uh, you know, a long time of low inflation environment, not just in the U.S., around the world too, okay, in many countries. And the reason I think multifold, you have demographic changes in advanced economies that reduce demand because aging population, you don't buy stuff as much compared to young people who are just starting out in their life or starting families. So that has a, like a weakened demand from demographics. And you also have... Uh, you know, globalization, you uh, shifted a lot of uh, production capacities uh, to lower income countries where laborers are cheaper so they can produce stuff cheaper. That lowers the prices in advanced countries as well. And those have been long-term trend and going on in train for 15, 20 years. And also you have the technology upgrade, right? So everything from, you know, iPhone to your computer to your television, prices keep dropping every year because of the productivity increase due to technology progress. So I think technology, demographics, globalization, those are, I would say, the three biggest factors contributing to long-term downtrend in inflation. But that doesn't mean that it will stay there forever when you have a short-term shock. Like since the COVID, we had a logistic chain shock, we had a monetary policy shock that constrained the supply side and also, on the other hand, it boosted demand side. So you have this short-term bump in inflation, which I still think is not a medium to long-term phenomenon, but instead is a relatively short-term phenomenon, this uh, jump in inflation. Well, I, I agree in part because, because of the Fed's actions, and I'm not talking about whether they raise rates or stop you know, quantitative easing, but just what they say out of their mouths has, in a sense, manipulated the markets down that when you lose five to ten trillion dollars of wealth in the economy because of the markets going down, that's got to decrease inflation as well. That's got to affect the demand side. It does. It does affect the demand side because uh, even if uh, you don't spend sp stocks in buying groceries, it's uh, uh, people count it as wealth, right? It's a perception of wealth. If your stock portfolio yeah. goes down, you feel poor, even though it's just uh, digits on paper. So it does affect demand when you have the so-called wealth effect, like people feel poor, so they spend less. So it's part of the intended result of when you tighten monetary policy or when you, um, before they start tightening, they start giving so-called forward guidance, right? Basically telling people, oh, we are going to tighten. And the purpose of forward guidance is exactly like you said, is without even raising rates, you give uh, a signal to the market, so market starts to adjust itself because market is forward-looking. So without you actually doing something, you kind of achieving a tightening effect. Yeah. That's a part of the monetary policy toolkit, I would say. I don't see anything intrinsically wrong with it as long as it's uh, used skillfully. Yeah, I agree. I don't see anything wrong with it. In fact, I think it's a very smart thing because if they were to actually raise interest rates to quote unquote battle inflation in, in a very technical way. They'd have to raise it like 800 basis points or some ridiculous amount if they, if they believe what, you know, all the media headlines or if they subscribe to all the media headlines and they just want to calm down the media. So instead they do this very smart thing, which is they, you know, they're in, in chess, there's a saying the threat is stronger than the exactly. execution. So they threaten and that is much stronger than the, the market goes down 20% $10 trillion in wealth is lost. Of course, I would say within the next month or so, we should see less inflationary numbers. I mean, who knows who can predict, but that's what it seems to me like. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how long the inflation is going to last. Uh, maybe we're seeing the top of it. Maybe not. Maybe we got another shock in the second half of the year. Who knows what happens with Russia, Ukraine? You know, who knows what happens with China? Are we going to see another round of lockdown or is it uh, the end of lockdown in China and uh, the country is going to open up, which is going to reduce the supply constraint worldwide? I don't know. 
I don't know. I, a lot of things can happen in the second half of the year. Um, but given what we have now, it seems like uh, we are at kind of a toppy situation in terms of inflation already. But is that going to go down from now? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But I still think fundamentally this is a relatively short-term phenomenon, though this short-term has been longer than people expected. <laughs> yeah, I think I mostly agree. And so I want to get into all your crypto stuff. You know, particularly you wrote an article recently, 35 disruptive uses of crypto or industries that could be disrupted yes. by crypto. And I thought this article was fascinating and it's related actually to the inflation discussion. First, I want to go 30,000 feet high and just kind of ask the basic skeptic question, which is what real world use case do you think there is of crypto that can't be done without crypto? Like just as, this is the basic skeptic question. You know, the blockchain technology itself right now is at a very primitive stage. So the blockchain database compared to your traditional centralized databases, performance-wise, there's no comparison. Blockchain is definitely so much shittier, okay? From my point of view, from an economist's point of view, when I look at Web3, what's really grabbed my attention that other technology so far has not been able to accomplish is this, is this ability for all types of value to trade with each other, to exchange with each other in a permissionless and open fashion. If you think about this, if you're going to like rebuild a network like uh, Ethereum, for example, which is the biggest uh, smart contract blockchain, that you have for thousands of tens of thousands of tokens traded on chain with each other. If you're going to build this thing from the ground up in a Web2 fashion, all right? You, you think about how hard this coordination problem is. Every company, you know, every project, you can issue a token, no problem. You can build it in your own database, SQL database, no problem. How are you going to talk with each other? You have, need to have common standards, right? So who are going to decide those standards? Well, let's just say internet, the TCPIP is... Uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, you see, like, this type of thing is a huge coordination problem. It's a very rare situation that you actually get this coordination problem solved and everybody abide to the same standard so that things can be exchanged. What do you mean by coordination? Though? Like what things have to be coordinated? Because a lot of data is coordinated by just the internet protocol and, and it doesn't need an extra layer like Ethereum on top of it. Okay. You, you look at traditional financial markets. Okay. So you have different stock exchanges in the world, for example, and you have the bond market and you have other like real estate market. Do these assets exchange with each other? No. If you buy stock on New York Stock Exchange, you, you buy and sell on New York Stock Exchange, okay? If you, if you want to buy, like uh, in the real estate market, you go buy real estate in some other market, okay? These markets, they do not talk to each other. So theoretically, yes, you can connect the databases uh, among these uh, markets uh, using some kind of, you know, a, uh, some some kind of, uh, uh, you know, API calls or some kind of, uh, you know, common standards, I could triangulate among all these players to come up with some kind of, uh, you know, consensus uh, standard that we're going to use, right? But you look at uh, blockchain, right? This happens from day one. You have the ERC-20 standard for fungible tokens. You have the ERC-721 for non-fungible tokens, even though they were developed not long ago, just a few years ago. But they're commonly adopted standard for anybody can create an asset, a token on chain and to transact with any other token. So this idea of internet value, right? So you, you, you say yourself, the internet has this common standard to allow different applications to talk to each other. But the internet value is supposed to allow different values to be represented and to talk to each other on a common network. Okay. And the blockchain is, is already accomplished this, despite all the technology deficiencies. I think this is incredibly important. So I want to I wanna just summarize so, so everybody listening can understand. Essentially, I could take anything. Like you mentioned real estate and as, an, as an example. I'll list a few things. 10% of a house or 20% of your future income over the next five years or a stock like McDonald's. And I can tokenize them. I can put them in a way so that they're all on the blockchain. And now I can trade them without previously 
having to start from scratch, making something that trades real estate with income, with stocks. So I don't have to start from scratch with these things. Yeah. It's already set up by the definitions of blockchain. Yeah, instead of these siloed standards and siloed database and siloed markets, you have one common standard, you have permissionless access, you have open access anybody can build on top. And it, as a result, you have this uh, actual very possible reality of the internet of values. Right. This is this is really interesting. So like people talk about tokenizing music royalties and then they say, oh, well, that's already been done. Like David Bowie sold off, you know, $700 million worth of his future royalties in the early O's and created the Bowie bonds. And but you couldn't trade that on a stock exchange for McDonald's stock. Yeah. And this is a real important. It's not just that you can tokenize these things the way David Bowie, in a sense, tokenized his future royalties, but then you could trade them like I could even make a bet with you about who's going to be president in 2024, we could tokenize that bet because as news comes out, that bet will have different value up and down. And we could trade that for real estate, for instance, on a DeFi exchange. Exactly. Now, today, if you're going to do that, because like you said, tokens are not new, right? You have airline miles, you have uh, credit card points, all those are tokens. You can think of it later. They're just points, digits in the database, right? But those databases don't talk to each other. You cannot exchange your airline miles for your credit card uh, points or for you know discounts at the, at the restaurant unless you convert them all into dollars <laughs> right but blockchain the existence of uh, smart contract platforms the, the open permissionless nature and the fact that you have common standard for token issuance on these blockchains so make all these things to be able to talk to each other all these values to be able to talk to each other and you also create a huge possibility to new representations and new forms of value to be represented. Right, that we can't even imagine right now. It's, it's going to be figured out, you know, by Web 4.0. Exactly. We, we don't even know all the ways in which, and I don't think people understand how important this is. Like, you figure all the financial assets out there, plus derivatives, everything, equals about $1.4 quadrillion in assets around the world. But now if you throw in the fact that you can tokenize just about anything and trade it, there's going to be 10, 20, 100 times that amount. Like the economy and the innovation in the economy is just going to explode upwards as people realize this use case. Yes, because, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, what is GDP? GDP is uh, your production effort that's actually being calculated, right? So if you wash your dishes at home, that's not counted as GDP, even though you put in effort. I count it, though, can... <laughs> because I want to make sure everyone yes. knows that I did it. But, the, you know, the uh, U.S. government does not count that, right? Your statistics office does not count it as the uh, national products of the United States. But you think about, like, when you have a permissionless and open network that can a lot of different values can be represented easily on chain, you open the door to innovative ways to represent values. And you kind of like make a, you, it, you open the door to allow a lot of latent values, such as, I'm not saying your washing dishes at home can be tokenized, but a lot of latent values, things that we value, but right now it, they do not have a representation in the economy through a numerical value. A lot of hidden values can be represented in a token format because the cost is lower. It's not just that they can be represented in this new way, it's that they can be traded exactly. for other assets. Because again, I could take anything, draw up a contract with my lawyer and say, okay, I'm selling off 10% of my house or 10% of my future earnings. But the fact that I could then trade it for a property in, in a game or airline miles or seasons tickets of you know the New York Yankees or whatever, like the fact that all this stuff is now tradable on exchange, that's what really seems to me the innovation, that, that there's a common language now that every asset could speak. Yeah, I'll give you an example. It's a national health priority. You want to encourage people to live a healthy lifestyle. That will reduce your healthcare expenditure, right? How do you encourage people to live a healthy lifestyle? You want them to move. You want them to exercise. So that's a valuable activity in society. So with token, like there are applications now today that allows you to tokenize that. This morning I went out for a walk, I, for, for a jog actually, I earned some tokens. And now I can sell those tokens on the secondary market for other things that I want, right? Wait, wait, did you really earn some tokens yeah, yeah, by jogging? Yeah, yeah. From, from what, like what token does that? So, so there, there are a couple applications that do that today. Um, 
one popular one is called Stepin. The other one, uh, which I like better, is called Sweatcoin. So basically, these uh, so-called move-to-earn model, now we can talk about how sustainable these are. They, they have their issues, but it's just an example of what kind of latent yeah. values can be represented in a token format to incentivize a kind of behavior that's actually productive, that's actually useful for the economy, for society. And because you incentivize this way, and because the token has liquidity, it's a way to incentivize the provision of more of that good behavior that you want. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I think there's a macroeconomic, very important point here that I haven't really seen anybody write about, but you kind of hint at it in your 35 industries that you could disrupt with crypto, which is that let's say the government wants to stimulate the economy. They can't, it's very hard for them without passing a bunch of laws or whatever to directly stimulate very specific industries. And even then it's sort of unpredictable, the, the outcomes. 
But so what they do is they drop a trillion dollars on the economy and they pray to God that the best things happen. Not only do they drop a trillion dollars on the economy, but if economic growth does not happen in the way that they hope, then inflation could occur because then the money's just sitting around and the demand side spikes up. But with crypto and this tokenizing of everything, you could target very specific industries, almost like they're micro economies and stimulate at a microeconomic level, these, these industries. And that avoids macro inflation by stimulating very targeted industries. Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like this is going to have very positive macroeconomic effects as people begin to understand tokenization. I think it will unlock another layer of GDP for sure, another layer of productivity. But whether governments will use uh, crypto or blockchain, that's a totally different question that we can... Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's because you can you can have a centralized database. Uh, you can have a you know a central bank digital currency ledger that does uh, what you said to give more targeted support to people who actually need that money. But you you don't have to do that through any public blockchains. Right, but I'm thinking of a specific case. Like let's say take Uber as an example. So Uber has a hard time making money. For ten years, they were funded by venture capitalists. So all of your rides were subsidized by venture capitalists and all the driver's income was subsidized by venture capitalists. So at some point, they either have to charge more for rides or they have to pay drivers less. But if Uber makes Uber tokens, so riders, the more you ride, uh, you, get, you, you, you get Uber tokens. And for drivers, the more you drive and get good reviews, you get Uber tokens. Uh, and these tokens could be exchanged for future rides, for instance. Now you've created this like micro economy around Uber tokens that actually has monetary value. It doesn't need an extra boost of outside cash to have a, a very fertile micro economy. And it could also be traded for Bitcoin or other tokens on a DeFi exchange because there's monetary value backing it. So what you're talking about is uh, what I call utility tokens. So, so uh, to me, utility tokens is a way for newer innovative uh, startups to actually, for growth companies to actually fund yeah. their marketing spending in a way that has less impact on their current day cash flow. Because when you're a startup, your cash flow is tight, right? So, but this is not magic. It's not like you're inventing value out of thin air. The essence of this is like, use a similar example as you just mentioned, Uber or some other company, right? When you're starting out, you do not have the cash to fund your marketing expenditure unless you have venture backing that you have, uh, you know, deep pocket people backing you. Otherwise, normally you don't have that much cash flow. Your cash flow are in the future. Your profits are in the future down the road. Today you don't have, but you need to expand your market share. You need to get more users. What do you do? You have to spend on marketing. So tokenization would be a way to compensate users, reward users using tokens, which can be traded on a secondary market to incentivize more adoption of your product without actually giving people the hard cash, which is the old way, which a lot of companies did like PayPal, when they just started to give people hard cash, when you actually refer people to the platform or when you sign up for a new account. So that's huge cash drain for a new company, right? So with, with token, it's less impact on your cash flow. But presumably, if you give a good utility to your tokens, for example, like you said, that you can you can use a token to redeem for future day products and services from the company, you are basically borrowing from your future profits to fund your today's marketing expenditure in the form of this token. So this is not magic. It's not like a magic money coming out of the internet. But it's like a, you're just shifting your cash flow because presumably your token is... Uh, Design in a solid way that ha actually has utility. So in the future, you do have to pay for these tokens, give people a reward that can be used to redeem products and services. So it will eat into your future profit. But you kind of shifted that cash flow, pull it forward to today in order to fund your expenditure of today. Right. But part of the value of, let's say in this example, the Uber tokens, part of the value is that you could, let's say I'm going to move to a country that doesn't have Uber. Well, I don't have any more use for these uh, tokens, but I could sell them because there is utility yeah. that other people value. Like there is a, I know what the cost of a Uber ride is. So, so people know, uh, have already assigned some value to a, an Uber ride. They're willing to trade for Uber tokens with let's say Airbnb tokens, or again, Bitcoin or the US dollar or whatever. 
So yeah, having liquidity is a big deal for the tokens. Uh, you know, it, it compared to a, um, a point system that is siloed within a single application or a single company's product. Having a liquid token app, you can change it on the secondary market. You can turn it into something else. That is way more incentive. Right, like like travel miles, like air, airline miles. It, that you can't trade for anything. There's no secondary exchange for that. Or property in a in a game, or or points in a game. You can't really trade, you know, armor or whatever in another game. So all of this stuff is fungible because, again, like you say, liquidity is valuable. Like if you take a micro cap stock, it trades for a lower multiple of earnings than a stock like, I don't know, Microsoft, because Microsoft's very liquid. It's practically cash. Yeah. So, yeah. So a lot of people say, oh, um, Web3, crypto don't really have a, a good, it's a, it's a bunch of thin air, don't have actual products, uh, you know, don't have good uh, uh, use cases. My response to that is, uh, yeah, if you look at today, most of the Web3, so-called Web3 pro products, their product is token. They don't really have a product. <laughs> but this same mechanism, this same logic, this kind of business model, if you apply this to businesses that are actually viable, that actually have sticky customers and value-added products, then it becomes a very, very powerful growth engine for the company. This seems to me like the biggest possible function for crypto technology, and nobody really at this point is doing it. Well, I'm advising some companies that are in the process of doing it. But so far, we have not seen uh, mainstream products or services or companies uh, do the utility token model. I think there are many reasons. Many have tried. Okay, It's, it's not for lack of trying. But keep in mind, smart contract platform existed uh, since like 2014. It hasn't been that long. Okay. So it's been a very fast-growing uh, asset class, but the adoption base is very small. Right now, we're probably at under half billion people in terms of worldwide crypto users and anybody who, who, who has uh, touched the crypto at some point. That's not a whole lot of people. Okay. So we are at this juncture where the awareness of blockchain, of crypto, and the Web3 it's been sufficiently infused in the collective public consciousness that we have enough awareness for this type of uh, utility token type of business model to actually take root, to actually start to see some successes. I agree with the start. Like you, you actually mentioned in an article that you put out just a few hours ago about big opportunities potentially in the crypto space. Like one big opportunity, as you mentioned, is that DeFi exchanges could just be better. Like right now, <laughs> yeah. they're hard to use. <laughs> they are. My grandma is not going to use a DeFi exchange. She's just not going to do it. And she's dead for one thing. But other than that, she still wouldn't do it even if she were alive because it's, it's just complicated. Who wants to get a wallet and then a Chrome extension? And then you read stuff in the news about hacks and I'm already, let's say, an old person. And I don't, I, I don't know how to keep track of these things. Right now, things are just too hard, I believe, still. Yeah, definitely. That is so one bottleneck in terms of if the industry, if uh, internet values in the blockchain format wants to get to next leg of adoption, that is one of the things that needs to be solved is the user experience. Right now, they are just shitty. So there's the user experience. There's user awareness. I believe all these hurdles will be overcome, but what else is a hurdle to adoption? Oh, oh, there are many. Like, for example, if we go at, at the fundamental level, if you are talking about internet of values that is worldwide, imagine how many transactions you need to do a day, right? If this thing gets mass adoption, how many transactions? You, you have uh, 300 million people in the United States. Everybody does, uh, I don't know, five transactions a day. How many times do you swipe your credit card in a day? Well, not just that. You're also doing a transaction when you walk now. Exactly. You have uh, so many different kinds of transactions. That needs really a very, very performant networks to actually carry <laughs> the burden of internet of values. And right now, the blockchains are simply not there. Okay. Ethereum processes 14 transactions a minute. So uh, there are solutions in newer chains like Solana and Avalanche and Aptos, and, and there are layer two chains that build on Ethereum. But all of these so far, I will qualify them as experimental tech. Yeah? None of them are very mature right now. 
What about this Ethereum merge? Well, Ethereum merge is just going to move it from proof of work to proof of stake. That it does not really solve the transaction speed or settlement speed constraint. It's still the same slow chain as before. It's just the, the consensus mechanism has changed from proof of work to proof of stake. That's what the merge is. But that will make it a little faster because the work takes time. When you do proof of work, it takes maybe microseconds more, but it takes a little bit of time more. I, I, I would not qualify it as a groundbreaking <laughs> you know, thing to, to elevate the speed of Ethereum. If, it, if Ethereum wants to speed up it, on their roadmap, they're going to do sharding. So basically break up the database into smaller chunks. Yeah. And then they're, they're going to have, they are, they are having so, like a lot of uh, so-called layer two uh, blockchains that are building on Ethereum. Basically use uh, Ethereum as the settlement layer, but you process transactions on these uh, layer two blockchains, which is faster and cheaper. So there are all these uh, uh, experiments uh, and ways that people are trying to boost the performance of public blockchain platforms. So far today, we're not there yet. We're pretty far from there, but things are progressing. So that's uh, one of the barriers that I, I can see. And then there are also the barrier of uh, actually communicating across different blockchain platforms. So now we have different blockchain platforms and each of them, I call them like the Web3 nations because uh, they are kind of their own economic ecosystem within the chain. And um, if you look at different blockchains, they kind of specialize in different things. Just like in, in the real world economy, you have different countries, they have different specialties. In Mexico, you have manufacturing. In US, you, you specialize in you know, information technology or some higher value added. In China, it's labor intensive uh, manufacturing. So you have different countries specialized in different activities. And you have, I observe the same thing in the blockchain world. You have different blockchains. Some of them, they do well in DeFi. Some of them, they do well with uh, like NFT markets or some, some of them, they specialize in gaming. So all these different chains need to talk to each other to create the internet of values. So in order to do that, you need bridges across chains, just like you need highways and ocean liners across different countries to move stuff around. That infrastructure is also weak right now. So um, just uh, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, from the infrastructure point of view, we are not yet there for the prime time for internet of values. In terms of building those bridges, like there are tokens out there or, or cryptocurrencies out there that do create this interoperability across chains and across different protocols. There's like Thor chain or there's a bunch of DeFi exchanges that do this interoperability, but maybe they don't have widespread use yet. I would say it's actually the one of the fastest growing segment of infrastructure in the blockchain space is, is these uh, cross-chain messaging and cross-chain bridging protocols. But I don't know if you read her in the news recently, you know, every other week you, you, you hear about some bridge got hacked and some $100 million got stolen. So these uh, protocols, so, so the, it's very the, the cross-chain security to, to make sure your cross-chain transactions, the cross-chain messaging is actually secure, is actually very hard task. So it is something I would say it's still people are working on. And aside from infrastructure, we, we talked about DeFi, you know, UX is very crappy. Uh, decentralized exchange is very hard to use and for various reasons. And, um, and also you have on-chain lending and borrowing. These also, you know, I would say still not ready for prime time because a lot of crypto would tell crypto people would say, "Oh, DeFi is going to overtake the global banking system. It's going to uh, overtake the banks." We are so far away from there right now. If you borrow land uh, in the DeFi uh, money market uh, protocol, the DeFi banks essentially, you are you put up collateral in in terms of crypto tokens. You put up Ethereum and uh, Bitcoin as collateral, for example, to borrow stable coins. And the prime use case for that borrowing is mostly speculation, to put money to, again, buy more tokens. That's not what people borrow money for in real life. <laughs> people borrow money in real life to start a company, to fund working capital, to buy a house, to buy a car, right? So those are the actual real-world use cases for credit. 
So right now we don't have that in the blockchain in on-chain ledger. You, you can't do that at all. Like I can't. There's no DeFi where I could bring Ethereum. No, you can. You can do that. You can do that. But 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 the thing is, so you you have to over collateralize with crypto tokens, right? So you have to. If I want to uh, borrow one hundred dollars of uh, uh, you know USDC stablecoin, I have put out I don't know two hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin as collateral. That collateral value is marked to market. So if my loan to value ratio drop below a threshold, I'll get liquidated. This is no way for mass market for most of the people in the world that want to borrow money for a real economy use case to actually borrow money. So um, that is uh, what I see is uh, in terms of the financial market adoption of decentralized finance. That, that's a, another kind of hurdle is, uh, you know, how do you actually integrate real life use cases and also non-crypto collaterals? into the on-chain economy. If we can solve that problem, that will open the door to a lot more adoption of, uh, you know, decentralized finance. Well, okay, let's, let's solve that problem. So it seems like let's take some real world asset that has some monetary value and maybe, maybe the monetary value changes over time so people could speculate on it. You, you tokenize it and... You're right. There's not really easy ways to tokenize random things. Like it seems like there has to be better platforms for tokenizing assets that I think have value. And but then once you can do that, it seems like that's a method of yeah, you know, making it easy to tokenize real world assets. Yeah, would would be a solution. Yeah. So so but that's so much easier said than done, right? So uh, a lot of protocols have tried or in the process of working on this. For example, real uh, tokenized real estate. But the thing is, this is related to another roadblock that I talked about actually in this article that I wrote today. Is that uh, if I tokenize my house as a non fungible token online, so it's a non fungible token, it's a unique hash. That represents my house, right? What prevents me from do it again? I can create another NFT, point to the same house. So there is no universal standard or mechanism that ensure this one-to-one -one mapping between a hash token on the blockchain and some assets that's sitting elsewhere. If you think about the traditional way in the real estate market, right? If you buy a house, you need to go through a very complicated process. You need to show a deed and there, there is like a house settlement. And so basically all this process is a lot of it is this transaction cost is being used to verify the ownership, right? Make sure you're actually selling something that you own. Make sure this is um, the titles of different parties are clear that you are actually the legit owner of the things that you sell and you're not also selling this elsewhere. So all this process is a transaction cost of selling the house. Right? So if you want to tokenize real estate, theoretically, it has the potential to simplify that process. But right now, we have not solved this one-to-one -one mapping problem. So it's not necessarily that uh, the transaction cost of uh, you know tokenized real estate transaction will necessarily be lower in doing it the traditional way because really we don't have the mechanism to ensure this one-to-one -one mapping let's take this problem apart what if you put all titles or data about titles on a blockchain and let's say there's some kind of manual process involved as well you need a lawyer to put the token together so you could tokenize your house so it's a little bit of Crypto, a little bit of manual, a little bit of getting all titles on blockchain so that you know that this title is the legit title. It seems like it's doable. It's just uh, yes, harder. It's, it's doable, but it's hard. It's harder, right? So you 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 need to get different people involved. You will get. You need to get lawyers involved. You need to get a centralized party involved to actually do the verification to actually ensure that because the, not everything is on chain. That your house is not on the blockchain. So, so there, yeah. there will be centralized party involved. So then you are steering away from the, you know, everything is programmable on chain. So right now, if I build a DeFi protocol, I just, you know, I write code in my basement and I don't need, need to leave my house, right? So I can push out the new products, uh, push out new code on a daily basis if I, I'm hardworking enough. But 
when it comes to interaction with traditional assets, with things and objects that are not sitting on the blockchain, that speed of innovation dramatically slows down. Right? Now you yeah. have to get out of the house. Now you have to talk to lawyers. <laughs> now you have to have a centralized party. You have to hire people to actually do different, you know, uh, these uh, verification and check and balance processes. So it becomes a, way more complicated than just writing code. So that's why there are projects doing these things and try, or at least trying to do these things, you know, bringing off-chain assets on-chain. But the speed of adoption, the speed of progress is way slower. Which which makes sense. I mean, that's like any industry on the planet ever. Yeah. It's just pe people expect so much because the internet was like overnight. It wasn't overnight. It started in the 70s and the web was started in 1991. And I would say it wasn't until 2005 people felt comfortable putting their credit card in the internet. So even that wasn't overnight, but people saw mass consumer adoption and then suddenly the internet was everywhere. And we just haven't reached that tipping point where there's mass consumer adoption yet that, that would even allow us to explore these use cases. Yeah, so I think these things are gradually coming. I'm, I certainly, I personally am seeing a bunch of projects that I personally am aware that are trying to integrate some kind of NFT model or utility token business model in terms of incentivizing behaviors in traditional businesses. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how, I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See Hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. 
Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. In your list of 35 industries that could see mass disruption from crypto, which ones excite you the most or which ones do you think are the most possible? I don't really have a specific industry that I find, uh, you know, really has an exciting use case for Web3 because the way I think about it is a utility token, for example, is a kind of a universal technology <laughs> that can be applied to a lot of different things. It, it can be applied to a lot of different businesses, but there are certain requirements from an economic point of view. I think it will require that you have some initial product market fit, that you are not leaking users, that you actually have a product that people want to pay for and use. Your Amazon warehouse example was very interesting. So the Amazon warehouse example. So, so by the way, the reason I wrote about these, okay, the reason I wrote about these 75, uh, uh, so how, how did I come up with these? I basically went to uh, NASDAQ <laughs> listings. <laughs> I scroll down from uh, by market cap, right? And I look at, okay, what kind of companies are on NASDAQ and how well they're doing. And I think about, okay, can this be disrupted using a Web3 model? The reason I'm doing this is because I firmly believe that the utility token business model is so powerful that when used in the right context, it can really disrupt industries and the supercharge business growth. So I want to give people a taste of what these things may look like. So I'm not saying these are the best ideas. I have a lot of shitty ideas. I have a lot of wrong ideas. I'm sure people will come up like way smarter ideas than me. But it's, this is to give people a sense of what this thing can look like. Okay. For example, I wrote, what I wrote about Amazon Logistics. So Amazon has distribution centers everywhere, right? Warehouses that you dispatch packages from. So if I put on my lens, a Web3 lens, which is like decentralized, participatory, tokenized business model. One thing a company can do is instead of these large distribution centers, you use decentralized mini warehouses, maybe sometimes in people's backyards for storage and drivers who pick up merchandises from the closest storage location and delivery fee will be paid in warehouse tokens that are earned by warehouse owners. So this is a way for you to bootstrap a bunch of warehouses, create a warehouse network in a relatively short period of time without sinking in a lot of cash. What can you do with those warehouse tokens? Can you use it to buy Amazon products, for instance? Or like what underlying value could the tokens have? So in order to, for products to, to be delivered, you need to, the customers need to pay delivery fee. So instead of paying delivery fee in dollar, pay the delivery fee, fee in the warehouse tokens. Right? That will give, yeah. your, give your token a, a, a value, at least a, some kind of floor value for your tokens. And those tokens are earned by warehouse owners. Now, the warehouse owners, they earn the same currency that customers are paying in. Yeah. So yeah, so, so from the company standpoint, instead of paying warehouse owners uh, from the get-go in order to bootstrap a network of warehouses, now, because you have token format, it's kind of, uh, you know, pulling, again, like we said, pulling your revenue or your profit from the future to be used today. But again, it's not, it's not part of one ecosystem. It's liquid because you could then trade it for yeah. the Uber tokens yeah. so, or so this is whatever. Yeah, it provides additional incentive for people to actually participate in your warehouse network. So an example of, of uh, uh, application, not in the same industry. But this worked beautifully for them. This kind of tokenization model is a, a project called Helium. Okay. So Helium is a, a decentralized uh, Internet of uh, Things network. So basically, the users, the Helium network providers, you buy these small pieces of uh, infrastructure that looks like your modem. It's called a hotspot. Basically, it, you're plugged in into the network and provides uh, Internet of Things and network connections that other Internet of Things applications can use this network. So Helium, since they, they, they published their token, um, I think sometime in 2021, if I remember, 
their network has really boomed. I have a hotspot. I run a hotspot, which I, I'm earning Helium token on. Okay, but Helium does not pay me hard cash in order in order to for me to set up this uh, hotspot. Actually, go out there to pay the U.S. dollar to buy this uh, piece of hardware. I installed it in my house in order to participate in the network. And uh, the concept is people who are using this IoT network, they are going to pay the fee to the network in Helium tokens. So as network provider, I am earning the Helium tokens. As network user, I'm paying the Helium tokens. And the Helium uh, you know, project itself, it does not have the money to pay me, but because the token, because liquidity of the token, it suddenly got so many people incentivized and excited to set up hotspots for Helium network. Now they have a nationwide coverage of their IoT network. Now there are other problems with this project. One of the problem, very severe problem, is that they don't have demand. They do not have demand for this network. So right now this network is not sustainable. So that's why I'm saying for, for companies that actually have a viable product that has a solid demand, but they need to just need extra help to actually boost that growth, this is a beautiful, beautiful model. Right. As, as long as they have, that's why I like how with your list, you started with NASDAQ companies because we know there's already demand for their products. Exactly. So creating kind of a mini economy or a mini ecosystem within that, and, and to, that has more potential to flourish because there's underlying value. Let's say 50 years from now, 30 years from now, this is a full-blown reality and every company that has demand is doing something like this. The actual size of the economy is going to grow so much faster than it's ever grown before. Like, what do you think is, uh, are there consequences to that? Or is this, a, this sounds like a good thing, but I'm just trying to think if there could be any negative consequences to this. I'm sure there will be negative consequences. Uh, you know, you, there's, there's no free lunch in the world. The world today looks uh, very different compared to 50 years ago. Are there negative consequences of having smartphone? Hugely, you know, I'm distracted by my phone every day. But would I live in a world without smartphones? No, I would not want to. So I will, you know, they're, they're always downside. And the, the downside, uh, for example, a lot of people point out that uh, uh, maybe you will have a hyper-financialization of everything in the world. Uh, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing for to some people? That is a terrible, terrible world when everything has a digit value attached to it. To some people, that that is a very unpleasant world. But, you know, I, I think I'm 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 way too short-sighted <laughs> to actually tell you what the severe negative consequences will be. Uh, what I see, and also you know, I'm biased on the optimistic side because I'm I'm an optimist. So what I see is you will uncover you know a huge layer of latent values in the economy. You will incentivize productive activities and you will improve economic distributions to make it more equal. So those are the positive things that I see coming down the road. There will be negative consequences, I'm sure, <laughs> okay? No, but I agree. I think what's gonna happen is it's gonna create many more opportunities for wealth and like you say, uh, income distribution and the need for government intervention to stimulate various parts of the economy is gonna be less because these economies are going to stimulate themselves. There's going to be so many incentives for consumers to participate in different parts of the economy that the need for monetary policy will lessen, is what I think. I, I think the way to do monetary policy will change for sure. And also what we count as monetary policy, who are doing the monetary policy will also change. Because I call these public blockchains metaverse nations. Okay? They're nations because they have an on-chain economy. They have their own monetary and fiscal policy. Ethereum has its monetary policy. Ethereum is like, we're burning half of the transaction fees. We're giving transaction fees to um, validators and miners. What are those? Monetary policies. <laughs> okay. So once these, if these economies, on-chain economies grow big enough, they are digital nations in the metaverse. They will be the ones that are giving, issuing monetary policies in addition to the nation states in the physical economy. And any kind of uh, large applications, Amazon, Facebook, they have so many users in the world. Any kind of uh, uh, 
if if a Web three applications, Web three projects that gets adoption to that extent, they become their own digital nation. It's a they have their token, they have their monetary policies. That will be the worldwide monetary policies that going to ha have impact on multiple physical economies in the world. Because just like today, U.S. biggest economy in the world, U.S. monetary policy changes that ha has a, so many. Layers of effects across the world, across different economies. Okay, so the same thing. If I have a vibrant and huge on-chain economy in the metaverse, no matter who's running it, it could be a, a a company, a project, a blockchain foundation, whatever. Whatever it does, that its policy changes, its changes of its rules, it's going to have widespread impact across both the metaverse economy and the real world economy. That's a if if we are talking about what what I'm seeing like thirty fifty years down the down the road if we actually have proper internet values, I think that's that's what it, what's going to happen to monetary policies is. Oh, and the good thing is it's going to be hard to change those policies. Like you know, a lot of these policies are are so called trustless, meaning there aren't people in the middle that you need to trust in order to to mediate the policy. So that is another actually challenge. For running uh, for for blockchain adoption, if you know, because uh, these so-called decentralized uh, uh, organizations, we have not come up with good governance measures, good governance frameworks for these to happen. Okay? And you actually need people to make decisions. You actually need uh, people to steer things in the right way. A lot of times, for a project to move forward, for a Going concern to move forward. So, if you look at uh, you uh, compare, for example, the blockchain network um, between like the um, Bitcoin network and the Ethereum network. So, Ethereum, it's a decentralized network, but it's a kind of has some more centralized decision making process, right? So, if you look at Bitcoin, it's really you know um, it it has no. No, no, nobody's in charge, and nobody knows. Uh, you know what's the future direction? What's the whatever we're gonna do tomorrow? The result is things rarely change in the Bitcoin network. Right? It, it just stays the same as yesterday. But on other newer uh, public blockchains, you see much faster, much innovative use cases and technologies coming up. You don't see that on Bitcoin. So it, it has a lot to do with the decision making process of people who are building and running the blockchain network itself. So I think uh, we are still in the process of figuring out how to actually govern and run these public blockchains because they're not companies, they're not for-profit entities, but still you need decision-making. You, you actually need to set parameters such as monetary policies. And uh, so, so some of these chains, they, they have like a foundations, which is a nonprofit, uh, they have some kind of DAOs to you know, allow users to, to vote for decisions. But all these things are um, in a pretty preliminary stage in terms of how we govern these uh, decentralized platforms. Well, like for Bitcoin, the fact that it doesn't really change from day to day and it's very hard to make a change, that almost is a benefit in that it's so big, that's where it becomes sort of a store of value because we know it's going to be the same tomorrow as it is today. Not necessarily in price, but in terms of tokenomics. But that's not a way to build the Internet of Values. It may be, it may be, it may work well for a single asset. No, you I know? agree. Like it Ethereum already well has more transactions for, uh, per day than Bitcoin. Gold never changed. Gold stays the same as as gold. Um, the, it can be a store of value asset, no problem. Does it help to to get gold into uh, become a much more value added asset class? No, no, I don't think so. So during the day, what do you do during the day? Like you're so intelligent about all these things and you're a visionary on this stuff. Like what's your main daily thing? You know, I juggle across so many different things. Uh, you know, I do economic consulting, run a startup. I write, I publish content, I advise uh, different crypto projects, and I also invest. <laughs> so it's a really a different thing, a lot of different things to juggle. So there is... There is not a typical day, I would say. Um, some days I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time in, in doing research, you know, digging into specific projects. Uh, 
some of, some of the days I, I do writing, some of the days I crunch numbers, I run regressions, some of the days I, you know, uh, talk to projects and other investors. So well, well, why do you crunch numbers? Like, what do you crunch numbers for? Well, I'm, I'm a macroeconomist. So I like to look at, for example, the, um, what, what kind of factors affecting crypto adoption, you know, um, what, what kind of affecting, uh, what kind of factors affects, uh, affect prices. Uh, so, you know, bunch of uh, different things uh, uh, and and sometimes I help, help projects design their tokenomics so how do projects know you to contact you to help them with their tokenomics like do you go to conferences or like how do you how, I mean I'm aware of you from your writings is that how people get aware of you or that, that is one way I, I do have uh, uh, mo- most of my audience are definitely crypto uh, very passionate about crypto right so I actually uh, there there are also a lot of builders uh, who are both builders and investors in the space. So they get to know me through my content. And I also speak at conferences. I know other people in the crypto space. So it's a really a variety of ways. But really, I like to write and uh, that helps me clear my thoughts. And uh, that has uh, helped a lot of people to know me as well. Okay, so how could the people listening to this podcast find you? What's the best way? Oh, they can go to Tasha Labs. Dot com. Uh, that is uh, my website. Uh, they can find my content uh, there. I also have a YouTube channel um, where I basically uh, answer my readers' questions about Web3. And sometimes I give an uh, update on the macro, uh, big picture, and how that affects the crypto market. And uh, yeah, so basically it's a very casual fireside chat format. Uh, I basically talk for an hour answering questions. And on my website, I, I, I put out uh, um, content regularly uh, in terms of g- help people to get smarter about Web3. I do a newsletter that that's free that goes out uh, um, usually once a week. So if you go to tashalabs.com slash newsletter, you can sign up to get updates of that free newsletter. Well, I have to highly recommend it because as soon as I get one of those newsletters, I read it. So uh, thank you so much for putting out this content and for coming on the podcast. And I hope you come back on the podcast again to talk about similar issues or maybe even the same issues because I forget later what we talked about. So we might have the exact same conversation again. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Tasha, anytime. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways your dedicated fidelity advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened visit fidelity.com wealth investment minimum supply fidelity brokerage services llc member nyse sipc Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more.